Before we come to today's passage, I want to take you back. A couple of weeks ago, I asked you to consider a question. How well do you know God? And in the course of that sermon, I admitted to you that I don't know God as well as I thought I did. I shared that my picture of God has been changing in recent years as I've paid closer attention to the life and teaching of Jesus Christ. For many years, I had resolved the question, is Jesus God? And I told you that I firmly believe that the Galilean rabbi we read about in the Gospels was God among us. But now I'm trying to answer a different question that that follows, I think, naturally out of that first question. It's a question that the Bible leads us to ask, is God Jesus? I've had a very strong response to what I said a couple of weeks ago. A number of people have thanked me and told me that it was a huge help to them. I I sensed that others might not have been persuaded and might even have been a bit confused. So I want to repeat the point I was trying to make. Whenever we read the Gospels with that familiar question before us, is Jesus God? We're acting as though we know who God is and that we're now going to measure Jesus Christ against the standards of God. If Jesus does things that surprise us or that we don't understand, so much the worse for Jesus. If he doesn't stack up to my picture of God, then he mustn't be God after all. That's what the crowds in Matthew 11 and 12 have been doing. That's what the Pharisees have been doing repeatedly in these passages we've been reading. But that's what I've been doing most of my life. Whenever I'd seen Jesus do things or heard him say things that didn't sound quite right to me, I somehow subtly, not, not deliberately, not with any great intention, I somehow subtly considered Jesus to be something less than God the Father. I was doing this while I held a theological belief that said Jesus is equal with God and is fully God, but I was doing it nonetheless. I've considered Jesus to be some sort of temporary expression of God. This is what God looks like for the short time that he lives on earth. Or I've been considering Jesus to be some sort of a a junior version of God, like he's the, the teenager, young adult version of God, And one day he grew up to express his godness with full maturity. As I say, I'd been struggling most of my life to accept that Jesus Christ revealed in the Gospels is the full revelation of God. And that's what I mean when I say, I don't know God as well as I thought I did. My picture of God isn't right. It needs to be corrected in the light of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. The picture of God I have in my head isn't the concrete standard by which I measure Jesus revealed in the Gospels. My idea of God needs to be recalibrated to the Jesus Christ revealed to us in Scripture. If that sounds like I'm making a distinction that doesn't matter, let me tell you, it matters hugely. It matters for how I live and how I lead. 
it means I can't continue to, to live with any concept of Christ-likeness that doesn't mesh with the Jesus Christ that we're reading about, revealed to us in Scripture. As free from convention as he was, as committed to the kingdom of God as he is, as much in love with this world as he demonstrated himself to be. And it means that I can't lead you to become faithful followers of Jesus Christ unless I'm, walk, I'm leading you to walk in the ways of that Jesus too. Leading you into comfortable social convention or comfortable theological orthodoxy won't do. I need to lead you to Jesus Christ, God revealed in Scripture. Maybe to try and persuade you one last time, have a look with me back to chapter 11, verse 27. It's a verse that we noticed a couple of weeks ago, but I find myself going back to check my thinking ever since. Matthew eleven twenty-seven. The debate about Jesus' identity has been rumbling on right through these chapters. So he talks about his identity. He tells us, no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. The text is as clear as day about two things. First, we'll never know Jesus unless the Father reveals him to us. I know this from experience. I know that I can preach till I'm blue in the face. I can talk with you for hours over months and years. But until God reveals Jesus Christ to you and your need of him to you, you won't know him. Not in the way that you need to know him. No one knows the Father except the Son. But notice how Jesus goes on. No one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. We'll never know God, the true and living God, unless the Son reveals him to us. There's only one God, and he's the God revealed to us in Jesus Christ. God really is Jesus. If you want to get to know God, the true and living God, come and bow before his son, Jesus Christ. And then, and only then, can you say that you're getting to know God. That may well be one of the longest recaps I've ever given at the start of a sermon. Okay. We've revisited our question from two weeks ago, how well do we know God? Let me throw up another huge question. What do you imagine God thinks of you? Or I could put it like this, how do you think God wants you to relate to him? The Bible gives us loads of titles for God and each one of them helps us to understand some aspect of how God wants us to relate to him. So think, think with me for a moment. The Bible tells us that God's a king. And it tells us that so that we know that we're to relate to him as loyal subjects. He's a Lord, and so we're servants. 
Jesus was a teacher, and so were his students or his disciples. He's the way, and so we follow. He's the truth, and so we believe. He's the life, and so we come to him to receive life. Each one of these and many more biblical titles for God help us to, to think about different aspects of, of God's nature, but also of how we're to relate to him. This morning we're going to see a title that Jesus gives us, one that can change significantly how we think of ourselves and how we relate to him. And it's almost unimaginably beautiful. Let us pray. Lord, sometimes your word challenges us. Help us never to duck out of the challenge. Lord, sometimes your word comes to comfort us in the most profound ways. Help us to stand in the way of its beauty. Amen. Right throughout chapters 11 and 12, Matthew's been showing us that there's an increasing level of hostility to Jesus. John's not sure about him. The crowds don't respond to him. The religious leaders are opposed to him to the extent that they said last week that he was working for Satan. That's not a good thing to say to God when he comes to live among you. You're working in the power of Satan. So whenever we come to verse 38, uh, the beginning of our passage, chapter 12, verse 38, we find the Pharisees and the teachers of the law demanding a miracle from Jesus. That, that might seem like a neutral question. It's not, not in this context. We have to realize it's an unfriendly one. It comes in the context of opposition. It's probably best to see their question as following on from the, the events that Neil looked at last week. The, the crowd had brought Jesus a demon-possessed man. He was blind and he was mute. Jesus had healed him, and immediately a debate ensued. What power is at work in Jesus that allows him to do this? Was he the Messiah doing these miracles in the power of God, or was he doing these things by the power of Beelzebub, the prince of demons? So their demand for a miraculous sign, verse 30, it's a bit like a, a demand for credentials. Jesus, show us your papers. Who authorized you to reinterpret the Sabbath? Who authorized you to drive out demons? If you're really from God, show us a miracle. We need evidence for all this. Prove yourself. Jesus isn't impressed and he tells them so in no uncertain terms. A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miracle, but none will be given you except the sign of the prophet Jonah. I'm not going to do a miracle here and now to entertain you, to convince you that I'm from God. My miracles will be intrinsic to my ministry. I'll do them when it's right to do them, but I won't do them when it's wrong. And the most important miracle is still to come. He was talking, of course, about his, his resurrection from the dead. Just as Jonah spent three days in the belly of a whale, 
So in the not too distant future, he would lie three days in the belly of the earth before the father raised him to life. I want to pause there for just a moment. I wonder if there's anyone here this morning waiting for a miracle. You won't put your trust in Jesus. <coughs> Pardon me. Not, not until he does something, something dramatic to persuade you. It's a common enough position to take. What's interesting here is that Jesus tells us he doesn't encourage it. He denies that miracles actually give any, any proof of authenticity. He warns us against being duped by them. So in another passage, later in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 24, verse 24, he says, false messiahs and false prophets will appear and produce great signs and omens to deceive. So great signs that deceive. So here's the thing. Although Jesus performed many miracles, he, he flatly refuses to use them as validation or proof of his divine authority. We see that in these verses. And he's hard words to say to those who demand miracles before they believe. In verses 41 to 42, Jesus does something a little bit like what he did back in chapter 12. So he, he has these religious leaders around him, and he compares them unfavorably with Old Testament pagans. It's, it's a pretty, pretty tough way to teach. He says first that the men of Nineveh will stand up in judgment with this generation and condemn it. You might remember Nineveh, pagan city, capital of the Assyrian Empire, and Jonah famously was sent to preach there. Jesus goes on. He says the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation to condemn it. He's speaking this time of the queen of Sheba, another pagan who traveled from modern-day Yemen at the south of the Arabian Peninsula to go and hear the wisdom of Solomon. What's Jesus' point? Why are these Old Testament pagans better off than the supposedly devout Jews standing in front of Jesus? It's very simple. It's because they listened. The people of Nineveh listened to the message Jonah brought them. The Queen of Sheba listened to the wisdom of Solomon. The Pharisees and the teachers, Jesus tells them, have somebody, a far better preacher than Jonah and a far wiser teacher than Solomon, and they're not listening. They're rejecting him. Friends, Jesus calls us to believe in him not on the basis of miracles, not because we see dramatic things happening in and around us, but on the basis of hearing his word. Are you waiting for a miracle before you'll put your trust in Jesus Christ? Don't. Miracles don't persuade skeptics because skeptics know how to filter out everything that they already see. Listen instead to the word of God. Open your heart to the prompting of God's spirit. Listen to the invitation of Jesus. Repent.
turn your life around. Come, follow me. I don't want to spend a great deal of time in verses 43 to 45, but I want to offer you an explanation because they might have confused you as we read them. Jesus tells a short parable here about a demon leaving a person only to return with seven more demons to repossess that person more fully than ever before. He says, that's how it's going to be for this wicked generation. What does he mean? Well, he's painting a picture of what's going on in these people right around him. In their times, they have seen the impure spirit come out of a person. They've experienced it in the ministry of Jesus. You might remember this. As well as healing people physically, Jesus does a lot of of driving out demons. So these folks have experienced this ministry of Jesus, this exorcism of demons, but they haven't accepted him. There's been no wholesale commitment now to the cause of Jesus. This generation who've seen that Jesus can cast out demons, that that he does drive out evil, they haven't welcomed him in to replace the thing that's been banished. They've created a a spiritual vacuum, if you like. And because they've rejected Jesus, because they've allowed this spiritual vacuum to sit in their lives, they're now more susceptible to evil than ever before. That's a sobering reality. Friends, it's not enough to momentarily experience Jesus' help when we need it. It's not enough to have experienced a momentary release from the power of evil or or a physical healing. Evil's always waiting to return. We need to respond in a life-transforming and in a permanent way. We need to, to turn from our own ways and to follow Jesus. We need to welcome him right into the center of our lives, to be there and to stay there. If we do that, we don't need to worry about demons. When Jesus Christ inhabits our lives, he'll protect us from the evil one. We can say along with Paul, my life is hid with Christ in God. And we come now to the close of the chapter, verses 46 to 50. And this is where Jesus gives us a quite beautiful way of thinking of our relationship with him. We've we've been in a couple of chapters here where the mood music's been almost entirely opposition. But in this chapter, in these two chapters, are two of the most beautiful things that, that the Lord says to us. Do you remember at the end of chapter 11? Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. But here... At the end of chapter 12, Jesus tells us how he thinks, not of his opponents, but of his friends. He speaks of them in the warmest, most intimate terms. He says they're part of his family. 
Look with me. Jesus is preaching in a crowd. At one moment, the disciples uh, appear, uh, and, and you can, I, I'm imagining somebody, you know, Jesus is in full flow as I am, and somebody's like, <clears throat> you know, trying to get his attention. Jesus, your, your mom and your brothers, they're, they're, they're outside. They, they want you. I want a wee word. And Jesus does something quite expected. Instead of going out to deal with them, he, he, he talks first to the crowd. What I'm imagining is maybe quite a large crowd, but with Jesus closest around him, his, his disciples, those who have stepped out of the big crowd to, to really commit themselves to him. So he points to these ones who are close to him, these, these disciples, these, these followers. And he says, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother, my sister, and my mother. His reply here, I think, is at the same time extremely challenging and profoundly beautiful. It's very challenging in a way that, that he, seems to, he seems to place his, his family of followers above his biological family. We talked about that here nine months ago when we did a series on family. I think that is what he's doing. And we need to come to terms with that. and Come to grips with that. It's a, a challenging teaching of Jesus. For Jesus' followers, his family and not their biological family is to be their first family and to claim their primary allegiance. But we talked about that nine months ago, so we're not going to talk about that today. I want to spend a few more moments thinking about this other profoundly beautiful aspect of his reply. Look at verse 50. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. Now we're coming to this question we're thinking about today. How do you imagine God thinks of you? do you think God wants to relate to you? God in Jesus Christ says, if you're with me and the Father, then you're my brother. You're my sister. My mother. I said at the outset that the Bible gives us loads of titles for God and each one of those helps us to think of how we're to relate to God. Uh, it'll, each one will give us a, maybe a different aspect of that. Well, here's a crucial one. Think about the metaphor for a moment. Those of us who've had the experience of knowing, of having brothers and sisters, will know that having brothers and sisters around you at the dinner table, it's the most normal and natural thing in the world. Even those of us who haven't experienced it maybe know how important it is because of the, the longing that not having it has placed in us. Brothers and sisters grow up sitting beside each other at every family meal from the moment they're born until they leave home. There's nowhere to relax like home. There's nowhere we feel more at ease than with our brothers and our sisters. 
We share a closeness with our family that's deep and profound. Uh, by the way, I'm not, I'm not idealizing it. I know that that closeness is sometimes painful. But there's a, a closeness to the relationship. It's something that's often left unspoken until an awkward speech at a wedding party or at a birthday or at a funeral. It might be mostly unspoken, but, but the closeness remains. An experience of comfort, of safety, of acceptance and belonging. That's what Jesus is talking about in this passage. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister. Isn't that just so beautiful? God in Jesus Christ calls me brother, calls you sister. It's beautiful, but is it biblical? Are we introducing something, giving it a weight that it doesn't merit? We need to be careful of that. Every time we come across something in Scripture that sounds too good to be true, it's, it's the first question we should be asking. If I could teach you one lesson of biblical interpretation, I'd say let Scripture interpret Scripture. If we come across something in a passage that seems too good to be true, well, let's, let's check it. Turn with me for a second. Hebrews chapter 2. page 1202 in your pew Bibles. At this point in his argument, the writer to the Hebrews is focusing on Jesus coming into, in the flesh, the incarnation, as theologians will call it. He tells us, verse 9, that Jesus suffered death so that by the grace of God we might taste death. He might taste death for everyone. So there it is again. Jesus his substitutionary death on the cross for our sins. But no sooner has the author reminded us of Jesus' work in the cross than he reminds us of the purpose of that work. Look at verse 11. Both the one who makes people holy, that is Jesus Christ, and those who are made holy, that is those of us who have trusted in him, are of the same family. Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. So there it is. Jesus lived among us to be our brother and died to ensure that we can all be brothers and sisters with him. For those who have come to Jesus by faith, he really does think of us as brothers and sisters as part of the family of God. A couple of weeks ago, I asked you to listen to the words of Jesus at the end of Matthew 11 and to hear them as the words of God for you. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Do you remember that? This morning, I'd like to close by asking you to listen to what your brother Jesus says to you through the gospel message, through the words of Scripture, he says, I am your brother. I made you my sister and brother when I became one of you and I died instead of you. 
bearing the impossible burden of your sin and its penalty. I am your brother. You are bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. You really are part of the body of Christ. I am your brother. I now share my internal inheritance inheritance with you. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. What is mine as the eternal son of God now belongs to you. I am your brother. If you love, if you love to do the will of the Father, then my Father is your Father. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. What does God think of you? How does he want you to relate to him? We have learned today that Jesus Christ is the brother we never knew we had. He's the ultimate big brother. My big brother taught me how to fix punctures. He guided me as I bought my first home. He's blessed me in countless ways throughout my life. Can you imagine what life would be like if we knew that Jesus Christ was our big brother? No one is closer to you today. No one will be closer to you tomorrow. Through the times of suffering and of joy, in the hour of your death and beyond into eternity, Jesus Christ, our big brother, stands beside us and goes before us. Shall we pray? Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, as always, for its truthfulness. It doesn't shy away, Lord. You have told us that people rejected Jesus then, and we know that we still do now. Lord, help us not to keep you at arm's length. Not now that we have seen how dearly you want us to be close. You don't hesitate to call us your brothers and sisters. Lord, help us to believe the gospel. The gospel real and true. The gospel that sounds sometimes too good to be true. Help us today by your spirit to believe it and to learn what it is to be your brothers and sisters. Amen.